Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. We're delighted to bring you this sermon from our Sunday gathering. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net. Thank you and enjoy the following message. Have you ever wanted a do-over? Wish you had one back? I certainly have had that experience. I think most of us have. Last week, I was telling you about my high school basketball coach, and if you're new to New Life, I promise that every week isn't a recounting of the glory days of high school for me. (laughs) But he was big on discipline, and one of his pet peeves was missing free throws. He would say they're free points, not free throws. And so we had to run sprints for every missed free throw in a game. So when I came to a and and started playing intramurals with my roommates, I really prided myself on not missing free throws. And we were up big toward the end of this one game we were playing our senior year, and I got fouled in the act of shooting, so I meant I was going to have some free throws. Now, one thing that you need to know is that back in the day, all basketball intramurals were played in a since-demolished building attached to Kyle Field named G. Raleigh White. Where's the old army in here? Okay, thank you. G. Raleigh White. Well, the courts were on the upper floors, and so by the time I got to A&M, this building was like falling apart. Every time you dribbled, it sounded like the whole thing was going to come down. Like every sound was just magnified times 10. So I'm standing on the foul line, go through my little routine. I spin the ball, dribble it twice, set the legs, and shoot. And as soon as it leaves my fingertips, I'm like, oh, no. And I'm not kidding you. It was like four inches short of the rim. Like it wasn't even close. And it hits G. Raleigh like an atomic bomb. And it's like boom, 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 boom. And for whatever reason, it was like a library in there at that moment. So like the shock is starting to set in. I look around, my roommates are literally on the court laughing at me. For the rest of the night, anytime they looked at me, they lost it. And before God, I tell you that every time we get together once a year, that story is guaranteed to come up. The airballed free throw, the one airballed free throw. We've all had that moment that we wish we could do over, that we wish we had back. And the nation of Israel had a lot of those. And one of those times, of course, was what we saw in chapter seven of Joshua last week, where they tried to take the town of Ai. But thankfully, God is full of mercy and grace. He is a God of second chances. We see it with Israel. We see it with people like Jonah and Peter and so many others in the scriptures. And we come away realizing that no matter how bad we blow it, God is eager to forgive, to reconcile and restore, and to send us back out in his service to accomplish his good purposes. Well, back in chapter 7, Akan, son of Carmi, stole some of the devoted things in the city of Jericho, and he brought trouble on the entire nation. They lost the battle of Ai as a result of his sin. And after that battle, after the victory there, Joshua, as we talked about last week, also failed as a leader. He didn't pray to the Lord. He didn't consult God in any way and ask what they should do or how they should do it. 
He just relied on human strategy and wisdom to try to take the town of Ai. Well, that was a costly mistake. It resulted in them losing the battle. 36 men died. Israel ran away in retreat. And God revealed that there was sin in the camp, that Akan was the one who brought this trouble on Israel. So Israel obeys God and purges the evil from among them, and God turns from his burning anger. And that's what we see at the end of chapter 7. So at this point, Joshua is probably pretty down as a leader. I mean, if he's anything like me, he's feeling very guilty. He's probably beating himself up over his choice. Even if he knows that God has forgiven him, there are probably some lingering questions in his mind as to whether God can or will use him again. And so it's with that background that you come into chapter eight and take a look at chapter eight, verse one. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. This is pretty much exactly what God says to him at the outset of the book, right after he took over for Moses. In church, those words are really significant. I think so many of us, when we come to faith in Christ, we really believe that God forgave all of our past sins. When we come to faith in Christ, we not only know that we are forgiven, we not only know that we have been justified and declared righteous, we feel that way too. We know that God doesn't hold our sins against us. But I think for a lot of us, we do not feel that way about our present sins, about the sins that are still ongoing, that we're still struggling to overcome in our lives. We have this vague sense that if we sin after coming to faith in Christ, that God is, our father is just kind of upset with us. Like you totaled the car, I bought you a new one, and then you backed it into the fence the next day. What are you doing? We live with this vague sense that God is always upset with us because of our sin. But friends, the reality is that when Jesus died for us, all of our sin was in the future, all of it. So when he died for our sin, he already knew that we were going to fail, that we were going to sin after we came to faith in Christ, after we'd been justified, after we'd been adopted into his family. So listen, if you're a believer living in that space where you feel like God is perpetually disappointed with you, where you believe that once you've blown it after you've come to faith in Christ, that God can't ever use you again, then I just want to encourage you this morning. I pray that God's word to Joshua encourages you this morning. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. God loves to restore. He loves to reconcile. He knows that you are a broken vessel still struggling with your sinful flesh. He knows all of that. You didn't earn his love and you can't lose it either. So as he did at Jericho, God announces the victory to Joshua beforehand. You look there in verse one again. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. Now, it's not surprising to us in this chapter to find very specific instructions for taking the city, much like at Jericho. Israel is not going to win this battle with human strategy or better weapons or better forces they're going to win this battle the same way that they won at Jericho. That is with confident trust in God and with obedience to his word. 
But this time, they're not going to be marching around the city for seven days, blowing the trumpets. No, this time, God commands them to take a look, lay an ambush against the city behind it. So the full plan is detailed in verses 3 through 13. In response to God's command to take all the fighting men with you, Joshua takes 30,000 men, 10 times more than he tried to take the first time when they sought to defeat the city of Ai. And 5,000 men are sent to the west of the city. They're going to lay an ambush for the city. The other 25,000 of them go north of the city with Joshua. And so the plan here is that they're going to draw the main fighting force away from the city so that those 5,000 men can then come in, take it, and set the city on fire. So I want you to look again at verse 8. He says, And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set it on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. This is such a difference from the self-assured, nonchalant attitude that Joshua and the elders displayed in chapter 7. I mean, God's plan for taking AI is nearly the opposite of what they came up with on their own. Initially, Joshua sent 3,000 men to take the city. God commands them to take everyone. Initially, they tried this bold, full frontal assault God says, I want you to lay an ambush and take the city from behind. Initially, the men end up running away in retreat. God has them fake a retreat in order to gain victory. It's almost entirely the opposite. And church, these chapters are a warning to us about the danger of relying on our own wisdom, our own gifts, our past experiences. See, the more wisdom you obtain, the more gifts that you have, the more experience that you get under your belt, the more tempting it is to trust in yourself rather than God. We should never forget that when Solomon was a young king, he was grateful and humble. He was grateful because he realized that he could have and should have been killed in Absalom's rebellion, but he wasn't. God preserved his life, and now he sits on the throne. He was grateful, and he was humble. I want you to look at his prayer that he prays in 1 Kings chapter 3. Take a look at this. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. There is such awareness, such humility. But when Solomon got older, he became entitled and proud. He ended up marrying all of these foreign women who worshiped other gods, who led his heart astray to worship other gods. And so friends, it's a warning to us that if the wisest man who ever lived could be led into temptation and led astray by trusting in his own wisdom and gifts and experiences, then surely we have to be on guard against that too. If Joshua could be led to do something like that, if Moses before him could be led to do something like that, then we have to be on guard against trusting in our own wisdom and gifts and experiences. 
So God has set Israel up now to take the town of Ai. And the next day, God's plan works perfectly because of course it does. The pagan king of Ai does the exact same thing that Joshua did before. And so that's telling as to Joshua's actions previously. He sees an opportunity. He tells everybody, all of the men in the city, to go and pursue the army. They're going to try to squash this thing once and for all. And he, like Joshua before him, doesn't realize that he's leading his men into disaster. So let's pick up now in verse 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven and they had no power to flee this way or that for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they had pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. So after Israel obeys God and carries out his plan to engage the army of Ai with this fake retreat, God speaks to Joshua and tells him to hold out the javelin that's in his hand. And if that sounds familiar, it's very similar to what God commanded Moses to do in the Exodus when the people were fighting against the Amalekites, where he held out the staff until the battle was complete. And again, we're being presented with this idea that Joshua is the new Moses. Well, as I mentioned, according to verse 17, every single man left the city to go and pursue the fighting force. So these 5,000 men easily take the city, they secure it, and then they set it on fire. And now the king and all the men have nowhere to run. So they make this last stand in the open field, but they are easily overwhelmed by the Israelite force. And the king is brought to Joshua They hang him, they leave his body suspended until evening, and then they throw it in front of the gate of the city and cover it with a huge pile of rocks. Now, at this point, we remember that this is not merely a human conflict. 
this is not merely a battle between people groups who all want to occupy the same piece of land. No, this is God executing divine judgment on all who oppose him and his rule in their lives. And so we notice that the king of Ai was treated no differently than Akan, the son of Carmi, the Israelite, who sinned against God, who rejected his word and his rule. Both of these men, one an Israelite and one a pagan king, were executed and buried under a pile of rocks that remained as a warning for generations. Friends, God shows no favoritism. All who repent and believe his word, like Rahab and her family, will be saved. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. Even if you're an Amorite prostitute, God promises to save all who repent and believe his word. But if you rebel against God and his word, it does not matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you are an Israelite, a child of Abraham, just like Akan. It doesn't matter if you are a pagan king. All who rebel against God and his word through their sinful disobedience will be judged. He shows no favoritism. And so it's important for us today to reflect on that truth and make sure that we're not believing the lie that because we are Americans or because our parents are Christians or because our roommates or our husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend takes us to worship every week, that we will be saved. God shows no favoritism. When the religious leaders started coming to hear John the Baptist preach in the wilderness, he said this to them, take a look. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, I want you to look at that word presume. John says, don't presume to say to yourselves that we are children of Abraham. Well, what does it mean to presume? It means to take for granted. It means to assume, to make an assumption. And friends, where we live, there are so many people who presume, who make the assumption that they are definitely going to heaven when they die. Well, John the Baptist knew his audience, and he knew that many of them reasoned that because they were descendants of Abraham, it didn't matter how they lived their lives. They would be going to heaven when they died. That's what they presumed. That's what they assumed. So after Jesus told them that he could set them free, take a look at how the Jews respond in John chapter 8. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. 
So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You see, church, sinners are slaves to sin. And the only way that we can be set free from slavery to sin is the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can do that. So whether you are a religious insider, you've been in church your whole life, you've been around these teachings in the Bible your whole life, like Akan, the son of Carmi, or whether you are an outsider, like the pagan king of Ai, and you have not been around church, you've not been around the Bible, you've not been around Christianity much of your life, then what you need to understand is that the call to you is the same. Every one of us is called to repent and believe in Jesus, the son who can set us free. He sets us free by his perfect obedience, by his substitutionary death on the cross, by his resurrection from the grave, through our faith in him and his work. That is how we are set free. That's the only way that we can be set free. Let's wrap up with the final verses in the chapter, verses 30 through 35. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Before Moses died, he gave some specific commands to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 27. He said that once they crossed over the Jordan into the promised land, they were to travel to the center of the land to Mount Ebal, and they were to build an altar there and set up a series of stones. And the altar was to be made of uncut stones, according to God's word in Exodus chapter 25. And the reason that they're supposed to be uncut is that the building of that altar is a reminder that there are no works, no chiseling, no hammering, no religious lifestyle. There are no works that are going to make it possible for us to approach a holy God in worship. So it's supposed to be built with uncut stones. And as we saw in verses 30 and 31, Joshua builds the altar and then the people offer two kinds of offerings on it, burnt offerings and peace offerings. Well, the burnt offering is also called the sin offering in scripture. So if you ever see those words used, they're, they're interchangeable. And what happens in the burnt offering is that the worshiper comes with an animal 
and he lays his hand or she lays her hand on the animal's head. And what that's doing is you are saying, I deserve to die because of my sin. But this animal is symbolically taking my place. The animal is then slaughtered and the entire animal is burned on the altar. The only thing that's taken out is the portion for the priest. Everything else is burned on the altar. And that represents the fact that our sin and its consequence is total. We deserve to be totally destroyed because of our sin and rebellion against God. So that's the first offering that they offer, the burnt offering or the sin offering. But what's really neat is the second offering that they offer is called the peace offering or the fellowship offering. And the ritual for this offering is almost the same You're slaughtering the animal. You're offering it as a sacrifice upon the altar. It's getting burned up, except in this case, not all of it is completely burnt up. Some of your offering is returned back to you, the worshiper, and you have the opportunity to eat part of what you sacrificed. And the the symbolism there is that you are at peace with God and have been invited to his table to dine with him you enjoy fellowship with him because your sin has been atoned for. So it's this beautiful picture of fellowship with God. And friends, the great news of the gospel is that no more sacrifices are necessary. I'm really happy as a pastor that I don't spend all day every day slaughtering animals and burning them. The great news of the gospel is no more sacrifices are necessary. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 on the screen. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. See, these sacrifices were commanded by God, not because they could take away sin, but because they were a reminder of our sins year after year after year. They reminded us that the wages of sin is death and that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. When Jesus came, He came to offer himself one time because unlike the blood of bulls and goats, his blood was sufficient to take away sins because he was a perfect mediator, fully God and fully man. And he was a perfect sacrifice because he had obeyed every law that God had given to us. He was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. So friends, this is what we remember and celebrate. The new covenant version of this is the Lord's Supper, where we partake of the bread, which Jesus said represented his body, and of the wine, which he said represents his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So we also get to enjoy a remembrance of that burnt offering and that peace offering once and for all in the person of Jesus Christ. So the Israelites build an altar and then they offer sacrifices on it. 
And then in obedience to God's word through Moses, they set up these stones and they write the law of God on them. I mean, have you read the law? That's a lot of words. That's a lot of words that they're writing on these stones, but they do it as an act of obedience. And then all of Israel gathers. Half of Israel is in front of Mount Abal, half in front of Mount Gerizim, and they are hearing the word of the law. Every word, it's repeated twice, every word. And friends, the significance of this event shouldn't be lost on us. They're doing this for the first time in the promised land. And as we talked about before, they're doing this after the battle of AI. Both of those things are significant. By doing this inside the promised land, the people are reminding themselves and recommitting themselves of the law of the Lord. They are up on this mountain in the center of the promised land, and they are putting on these stones a permanent reminder that we do not live by bread alone. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is how we're going to live in this land. We are going to live under, literally under the word of God. And they're doing this after the battle of AI. You notice that after the victory at Jericho, there's no prayer, there's no worship, there's no sacrifices mentioned, nothing. They're saying here that we're not gonna make the same mistake. We are going to remember that blessing comes from carefully listening to and obeying the word of the Lord. So friends, this is the reason that worship and the word of God have to be central in our lives. We gather every week to worship and to hear the word of God read and preached because we are quick to forget God, just like Joshua and the Israelites were. Every time we gather to worship, or we open the word with others, or we open the word with our families, or we open the word by ourselves, we are reminded of God's character and of his work through Christ and of his commands. And I mean, just think about this situation. It's not like it was convenient for them to stop what they were doing for who knows how long this took to go up that mountain and find these stones and to write out the word of God on the stones, then to hear all of it read They've stopped everything and they're doing this in the middle of the promised land with hostile armies all around them intent on defending what they think is their land from these hostile invaders. It wasn't convenient. It wasn't safe. And friends, it's not convenient for us and for many believers around the world. It's not safe to gather and worship. It's not safe in China. It's not safe in Iran. It's not safe in many parts of the world or convenient to gather to worship God. And I think as Americans, you know, it's not convenient for us. We are workaholics. Whether you're a student or an employee or a mom, we are workaholics who have been convinced by our culture that it is normal and expected to work seven days a week. We are wealthy and we have all manner of entertainment and options for travel and recreation at our disposal. It is normal and expected that you would go away most weekends and not gather with a body of believers to worship. 
It's not convenient for us to take off a day of work or a day of study. But friends, like Israel, we are showing with our actions and with our choices on a regular basis that we will not bow to the cultural idols, that we will not bow down to the same things that everybody else around us bows down to because of cultural pressure. We won't even bow down to our own excuses or justifications. No, we will bow to the Lord and we will submit to what he says in his word. Friends, Israel was blessed the second time around because they heard and obeyed the word of God to them. I am certain that Joshua and the elders did not want what happened at Ai to ever happen again. And no doubt they hoped that in obeying Moses' command to write the word of the Lord on these stones, that that would go a long way to helping them remember God and his word. But the problem cannot be solved by etching God's word into stone, whether on Mount Ebal or in front of courthouses in our country or anywhere else. Because the problem is not that we don't have the word external to us enough. The problem is that we have stony hearts. Many centuries later, the Lord spoke these words through Ezekiel. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. See, when God began to talk to his people about the new covenant and he began to reveal what that was, he promised to deal with the root issue. The problem is not that God's law isn't obvious enough to us on the outside. The problem is that we lack the desire and the power to obey God's law to begin with from birth. So God solves that problem by giving us the new birth that results in a new heart, a heart that desires to worship and obey him. And by granting to us the Holy Spirit, God himself to reside within us and give us the power that we need to actually obey those commands. That's the power of the new covenant. So if you've come to the place where you want a do-over in your life, where you recognize that you have failed to keep God's law and that your sin has broken your relationship with God and with others, that is a great place to be. The good news is that God offers you something even better than a second chance. He offers you forgiveness for your past failures. He offers to credit you all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He offers to adopt you into his family a family that you can never remove yourself from by your sin once you're a part of it. And so friends, don't put your hope in trying harder to do better. Put your hope this morning in Jesus Christ who can remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh where you will have the desire and the power for the first time in your life to live a life that is honoring to the Lord. There is nothing that you have to do 
other than repent and believe. And friends, if you're already following Christ, I want you to be encouraged today by how God dealt with Joshua and with Israel. No matter how much or how often you blow it, and we all blow it pretty big sometimes, God is a God of second chances. And third and fourth and fifth and sixth. And so if you are his child this morning and you are beaten down with guilt and shame, then I want you to hear those words afresh today that God spoke to Joshua, do not fear, do not be dismayed. When you put your eyes on yourself and all of your failures, you have nowhere to go but despondency. When you pick your eyes up and you look at Christ and his perfection on your behalf, then your heart and your spirit can be lifted because he's the one who did everything for you. Don't you forget that so many people, Moses, Joshua, David, Jonah, Peter, they all needed a fresh start. They all needed a do-over. And you think about Peter, just so discouraged, so down after rejecting and denying Jesus, not once, but multiple times. And to see Jesus standing on the shore, cooking breakfast, inviting him to come over, inviting him to reconciliation, and then sending him back out, not just as his ambassador, but as his friend. That's the picture that I want you to have in your mind of your savior. Be encouraged, church. God is a God of second chances. Father, I pray this morning that you would send your Holy Spirit to comfort all of the discouraged and beat down children who live life in the shadow of feeling that they've just disappointed you over and over again. I pray that for myself because I live in that space a lot of times. I pray that we would be encouraged that as soon as Joshua and the people repented, you were eager to receive them, eager to forgive, eager to use them again for your purposes. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would lift up our spirits today. Forgive us for fixing our eyes on ourselves and our failures instead of on you and the great Savior that you are. And Father, we certainly pray for those who have been working hard, trying hard, hoping in themselves that their righteousness will be enough, that their efforts will be enough. I pray that they see once again that our efforts can never be enough, but that the work of Christ is sufficient. The person of Christ is sufficient. 
I pray that they would receive him this morning through faith. Thank you, God, for your wonderful word to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from New Life Baptist Church in College Station, Texas. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net.